this is the Unorthodoxy Podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn, and this is part nine in our series on the book of Exodus. Those of you who've been following along in the actual book of Exodus, which I would recommend, by the way, uh, will notice that we've gotten up to about chapter 13 of that book. And uh, as I've kind of mentioned before, that may feel like I'm going very slowly through the book. Well, from here on in the remaining episodes in our series, and I don't think there will be too many of those, I'm going to be focusing much uh, less on the narrative of the story, at least the narrative details of the story. As we move towards a conclusion, uh, what what happens is, well, at least as I see it, is that the themes um, are going to start to take over in in my kind of uh, kind of rough exegesis of the book. Uh, you may feel, of course, like I'm fast-forwarding too much uh, through specific things at times, but my idea is to focus on key notions that help to highlight what the remainder of the Exodus story is about. In any case, as I read it, much of what comes after the release from Egypt mirrors what comes before. There are callbacks and retcons that are worth paying attention to. So, well, let's get stuck in. By now, you will know that the actual exodus of the book of Exodus has happened. Thanks to Moses and Aaron and their backing by the people of Israel, the slaves have been set free. They are, to quote Simon and Garfunkel, homeward bound. Uh, And we may want to end the story here because it's a lovely uh, kind of happy ending, right? Freedom. But that would be... uh, well, that would be a kind of fairy tale ending uh, with everyone sort of living happily ever after. But part of the genius of the book of Exodus is found in the fact that this isn't the end. This is, to employ a cliche, the beginning. Life is like this. Take, for example, the freedom of getting to choose which university you'll attend or what you will study. After applying and being accepted, that freedom really means that now the real work can begin. The freedom to choose who you'll marry is the same. Naturally, the wedding is a massive celebration and it's really wonderful, but it marks a point of departure, not the point of arrival. Israel is free from one set of constraints and therefore free for a whole other set of constraints. They've been released from Egypt, but the promised land is a very, very long way away. The first complication of their new freedom is found in Pharaoh's indecision. He elects to let the people go. We know about that. And then he decides to go against his decision. And this may feel like a very strange thing for a leader to do, given that it's 2018. But just imagine if there were a politician out there who made one claim and then backtracked on that a short while later. It would be terrible, right? But More than that, this hypocritical gesture is pretty much at the center of all ideology, as is noticeable in its extreme forms everywhere. The ideologue will ask for the support of those people who fall outside of their ideological spectrum, and then, when support is given, turn and maul those people. This, I think, is part of what Jesus may be getting at with his pearls before swine image. You may offer something good, a good gesture to someone in the hope that they'll recognize you're on their side, possibly because this is what they want from you. But ideology exists to legitimate the conflict and maintain it. And the swine will soon find a way to turn back into the enemy because an enemy is always essential to their resentful project. And now that I've said all of that, I wonder if maybe it's a bit 
abstract. So let's let's get into something a little bit more concrete, specifically on the idea of of ideology, which I think is part of what this uh, issue of Pharaoh's indecision is pointing to. The principle of scapegoating must be maintained for any ideologue, no matter what. And Pharaoh is a symbol of this principle here. In his own mind, it makes sense to liberate Israel, since they are the source of the agony of Egypt, given the plagues, right? But it is also, as he quickly realizes, something that doesn't make sense, since they are also the source of Egypt's unity and strength. If you get rid of the scapegoat who is unifying your entire project, what do you have left? Well, if this is your modus operandi, you in a way have to find another scapegoat. And in Pharaoh's case, he opts for the simplest solution and tries to get the old scapegoat back. Notice, by the way, that there's a parallel between the sending out of the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 and the freeing of Israel. But I am, of course, using the term scapegoat in a slightly more more equivocal sense, since I am keeping in mind the work of René Girard. The symbolism of Pharaoh's or Egypt's desire to get back what they've just let go of is that of the struggle to genuinely be free from the power of sin and death. You make a choice to step away from the thing that's been causing you harm and end up going right back to the same thing. In fact, Sometimes by stepping away from something, by saying no to it, its power over you seems to grow. I think this is one of the ingenious ideas uh, behind Jesus' notion of turning the other cheek. His point is that when you resist something, sometimes you give it more strength, you give it more energy. Well, I've seen, you know, this, this idea of saying no to something and watching its power grow over you in, in so many circumstances. I've seen it. Um, in people who they're in unhealthy relationships and they go back to the source of their strife after the breakup. There's a kind of Stockholm syndrome in, in this that mimetic psychology would explain as being the result of the fact that the subject's entire orientation towards life has been bound up in that other person. And finding a new orientation in life is terribly difficult. Given the ensuing sense of a dismantled self, sometimes people find it better to go back to their old ways simply because the old ways are known. The dog, as the proverbs say quite provocatively, returns to its vomit. As I've said before though, while it's really easy to get the slave out of Egypt, it's nearly impossible, or at least it's really, really difficult, to get Egypt out of the slave. Part of the reason for this is that slavery is, to an extent, comfortable in its familiarity. You could even say that slavery is enjoyable. You may feel I'm putting this too strongly, and I probably am, but my point is to highlight the practical experience of slavery. The sense of being enslaved feeds something, even sustains something within the psyche of the slave who returns to what is bad for him. Maybe this is too abstract, but think of something like addiction. Addiction is exactly like that. It's something that grips a person even though it is bad for them, they will keep going back to it. But here, of course, in the context of Exodus, I am talking about Pharaoh. He is the real slave here, although the pattern that he exhibits takes root in Israel later on, which I find quite fascinating. It's, it's profoundly narrow-minded to think that slavery affects only some and not others. In reality, it's a universal problem, so I think it's very significant that 
Pharaoh himself is enslaved in a sense, and Israel is enslaved, and what they need to be is free, all of them. So anyway, Israel is set free, and this is great, but they end up getting stuck, in a sense, between a rock and a hard place, although the rock happens to be an ocean, and the hard place happens to be the Egyptian army. So in front of them is the Red Sea, and behind them is Pharaoh's army, closing in on them. The only thing that will save them is a miracle. Interestingly for me, uh, this parallels the more recent historical event of the miracle at Dunkirk during World War II. At Dunkirk, British soldiers were trapped between the English Channel and the fast-approaching German army. And the trouble they faced was the same as that of Israel, no way forward and no way back. They were really stuck. The miracle at Dunkirk was that the civilians came to rescue them, something astonishingly well dramatized in Christopher Nolan's uh, film of the same title, Dunkirk. It's an amazing film. It's one of my favorite films of last year. The miracle at the Red Sea is that the sea itself opens up and lets the people through and then closes down, thereby drowning the Egyptian army. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in saying this. The most perplexing thing about Israel's position between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is that it seems to all be part of a divine mandate. God himself had told them exactly where to go, and he also hardens Pharaoh's heart to ensure that the army will pursue them. When you read the text, this really will jump out at you. The idea here is that what seems to be the worst place to be, what seems to be the most abysmal failure of a strategy for escape, is the very thing that Israel needed. Because all of this, from the perspective of the storyteller, fits within the scope of providence. It reminds me of the story of Walter Sizek in his book, He Leadeth Me. The man was in a terrible, terrible situation. He was falsely accused and imprisoned in Russia at the height of communism's reign of terror. And throughout his work, he keeps on saying the same thing, that this was all part of God's plan. By the way, for someone to say this, I think it was 22 years that he was in prison. So it's not a short time. And he, he kept on saying that this was part of God's plan. And it's the sort of theologizing that I tend to resist quite strongly because it, it uh, suggests also all sorts of things that I, I find worrying. Now, so, of course, it's possible to look, as I tend to, at evil things and make the outright assertion that it really is evil. And I think Sizek, and I think Sizek could have done this. He could have actually pointed out that, you know, this, this terrible thing that happened to him was truly terrible. But I think what he was getting at, and is, is pretty much what I think is the point of the Exodus story on this particular issue, the issue of the, the divine mandate of providence. The issue is that the evil thing has not overcome the good thing. The presence of that which detracts from the good and tries to negate the best of being is not a sign that evil will get the last word, but a sign, rather paradoxically, that evil is not a permanent feature of reality. Israel grumbles a great deal when they see the Egyptian army, and Moses tells them more or less the following, Don't be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance that Yahweh will bring for you today. And he probably stuttered as much as I'm doing right now. Um, he continued, The Egyptians that you now see will soon be gone. 
never to be seen again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to do nothing. So here's my quick exegesis of this rather remarkable uh, little passage. Tell your fear that while it is a helpful alarm bell, it does not get to call the shots or determine the order of values that guide you through reality. Stand firm in what you know to be true and good and just and stick with it because it is in that stance, in the, the order of the highest good, that deliverance will be made known. The evil that you think has a permanent place within the order of being will be obliterated completely. That which denigrates your being is not that which is ultimately real and will be outlasted by that which is ultimately real, namely God. God, as that which calls all things into being and sustains being and transcends being, will sustain you in your stance on reality in the same way that he sustains existence itself. You can do nothing about this but trust that this is how it is. The idea that God will fight for us while we watch may seem an example of wishful thinking, (laughs) Uh, but I've lived long enough to know that some forms of wishful thinking can prove to be true. When you're at your weakest and your most vulnerable and someone steps in and simply tells you, don't worry, I'll handle this, you know what that feels like. It's a remarkable thing. Maybe you're not exactly facing the Red Sea, but maybe the thing you're facing feels like the Red Sea, and maybe you do feel from time to time like the Egyptian army is at your heels. So it is something quite remarkable when you notice the gifts around you, the the good things around you, and and people who say, don't worry, I'll handle this. (laughs) The best thing you can do in those moments is to trust them. And they may screw it up, but it's probably still good that you let it go. Or perhaps the idea of doing nothing in the face of something monumental is a hint of how important it is sometimes to contemplate what needs to be done first before diving in. I've seen some of my students struggle for long periods of time while they're struggling with an assignment um, or a project, and I'll sit them down and I'll ask them what they're trying to do, and they'll look at me like I've just arrived from outer space because that question, what are you trying to do, never occurred to them. They were too busy fighting to contemplate the actual task before them, Sometimes our very actions are the thing that's ineffective, like trying to run from grief by drinking heavily, which just puts you into a spiral of negativity. Sometimes the solution that you're trying to work with is the problem. Even in its most literal sense, the destruction of the Egyptians by water is quite astounding. It it suggests that God is on the side of the underdog. The power structure of Egypt is totally smited. Uh, I like that phrase. I should use it very often. (laughs) It was totally smited. If you happen to disapprove of all of this smiting, it, it is helpful to imagine yourself as one of those lowly recently enslaved underdogs standing on the shoreline of a huge expanse of water waiting for your death. When you think it's curtains and suddenly it isn't. Moses holds his hand out over the waters, a symbol of creation which is very cool, and a foreshadowing of Jesus' calming of the storm, which happens in the, the Gospels, and the waters obey him. If you were experiencing something like this, you'd be likely to do something like break into song, which 
is what Moses and Miriam do in Exodus 15. Because occasionally life is like a musical. That passage through the Red Sea has wonderful symbolic value. The water is, of course, the primordial water of creation, and in later Christian symbolism, the waters of baptism. It is, in more embodied terms, the birth canal out of which a reborn nation of Israel emerges. The the Egyptians drown in this, meaning that the Logos does not call them out into being, but rather lets them suffocate in their own defiance of life. They are kind of stillborn. In a way, um, you could to use another image, they are the walking dead kind of spiritual zombies and they return to the grave in a way. And then Israel discovers to their horror that they have just walked into a desert (laughs) and for a while they are without water. They grumble again, just as they did when faced with too much water. They just can't seem to win. And eventually they find water, but the water is contaminated. So Moses throws a piece of wood into the water and it suddenly becomes pure. Just to backtrack and and look at this moment for a bit, this idea of, you know, there's one problem and then they move away from it and then encounter another problem. Well, again, I think that's, it's quite remarkable for the story just to propose that that is what life is like. You, you solve one thing and then another totally different thing comes from out of nowhere and kind of blindsides you. And then you are faced with, with, you know, the question of what to do. Israel is slightly passive in, in this situation because they are really at the mercy of, of the wilderness, of this desert. I mean, needing water, is, that's a very real thing. So it is significant that when they find water, it is bad water. Well, the only thing that's going to get through that, that is a miracle, like Moses throwing a piece of wood into the water until it becomes pure. The early Christians read these two stories. That's the story of the, the crossing the Red Sea and the story of, the, of the, the water being made pure as a pattern of redemption. Moses is the type of which Christ is the archetype. So just as primordial chaos surrounds us, Christ enters into the midst of that chaos and with his hands held above the various turbulences of existence, calls everything to order. He calms the storm. And this is what, I mean, if you want to use more mystical language, this is what the Christ consciousness does. If you tap into that consciousness, the storm is calmed. And then in the other story, that becomes a kind of type of the archetype, which is is the cross of Christ. And his cross is kind of the wood that is thrown into the bitter water, the chaos of existence. And that is what makes it palatable. Even though, even though it is kind of homeopathic, it's the kind of sickness that is the cure, that to use a symbol of death as, as the symbol that death is being overcome is, is quite a remarkable thing and needs quite a lot of contemplation. Of course, you may see these images as naive relics of a bygone age. That's up to you. But this can be taken in various ways depending on your particular convictions. The humanist way, for instance, is modeled for us by Kurt Vonnegut, who is just a a marvelous writer. He says this wonderful thing. I'm going to quote him in full. It's It's quite a nice passage. I am incidentally, he says, honorary president of the American Humanist Association, having succeeded the late great science fiction writer Isaac Asimov in that totally functionless capacity. Um, since Vonnegut has passed away, I'm actually not sure who took over from him. 
in this functionless capacity anyway. And he continues, we had a memorial service for Isaac a few years back, and I spoke and said at one point, Isaac is up in heaven now. It's the funniest thing I could have said to an audience of humanists. <laughs> I rolled them in the aisles. It was several minutes before order could be restored. And if I should ever die, God forbid, I hope you will say, Kurt is up in heaven now. That's my favorite joke. How do humanists feel about Jesus? I say of Jesus, as all humanists do, if what he said is good and so much of it is absolutely beautiful, what does it matter if he was God or not? But if Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount with its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I'd just as soon be a rattlesnake. Isn't that great? You might not be in a place to be able to call Jesus what the Christian tradition tends to, but I think it's safe to say that he makes the bitter water of existence taste sweeter. Jesus is like water in a desert, what the writer John refers to as living water. The Christological imagery in Exodus continues, of course, when the people of Israel find themselves in the desert, as Jesus does during his temptation, they come up against a fundamental need for food. And there is manna. This is this weird bread from heaven. That's an image that Jesus uses to refer to himself. It's an image that should be taken alongside the Exodus image of bread. It's something that meets a person's hunger head on. The word manna, I really like this. It's actually a question. Uh, the question is, what is it? And it's the question that mirrors the question Jesus asks of people. Who do you say I am? The question is a reminder of the mystery of the Eucharist. But of course, bread is not the only image at the Eucharist. The other image is that of blood spilled, the wine in the communion meal. Well, that's echoed in the Exodus story and the fact that it's not only bread that the Hebrew people receive. They also get meat in the form of quail that show up every evening. So the death of those birds is more is a kind of more stark image of sacrifice, albeit not strictly um, of, of ritual sacrifice. Those birds die, their blood is spilled so that the people can live. Well, that's actually the one of the ideas um, that we find in the Eucharist, that it is a meal that is, it, it represents death, just like everything you eat. <laughs> everything you imbibe or, or, or eat is in fact dead. It's something that has died and that is the source of your life. Well, that's kind of the idea that the Eucharist or one of the ideas that the Eucharist represents. One of the commandments that accompanies the arrival of manna and quails is the commandment that the people should only take what they need. This is an amazing hint at what the law itself will get at. And I'm going to obviously talk a little bit more about that in a later episode. Law is always about the conditions for avoiding rivalry and mimetic violence. You take what you need so that you and your neighbor don't get into unnecessary squabbles over things you both covet. You take what you need to recognize the implicit finitude of your being and the being of others. In fact, if you want to know how to start a war, it's quite simple. I'll tell you, it's a, not a difficult thing at all. Tell one group of people that someone else, another group, has their stuff. <laughs> it's very simple. It's just all of that. In other words, tell them that they don't have what they need and that someone else does. Of course, it's a fiction because it's not about need. It's about desire. But this is, in fact, the impetus behind all ideology. 
maintain a distinction between the haves and the have-nots as if having is all that matters. I should probably name an example just so that this doesn't remain too abstract. And my example is going to be that of Marxism because what Marxism does, this is very rough, Marxist theorists uh, will, will get a little bit angry with me for even saying this, but it is true. It's, it's a fundamental aspect of a Marxist thought. It sets up a very strong distinction between the proletariat, the common man, say, and the bourgeoisie, the elites, and then tells the proletariat that the bourgeoisie has what they should have. <laughs> Um, enter the idea of a class war. Of course, I'm pointing this out not in any way to imply by any means that unjust systems don't exist. There are unjust systems, but rather that the primary source of a great deal of conflict is in the perception of injustice. It's even possible that oppression itself might not exist until someone comes along and assumes that they're oppressed. That's possibly a little bit too contentious of a thought, but I'm putting it out there, and I think it is worth thinking about. See what you make of it. Significantly, the freedom of Israel from Egypt comes without obvious mimetic conflict. That's at the end of the the whole uh, plague thing, obviously, because there is a fair sense of conflict in the in the midst of the plagues. Israel wants to be free not to take over the dictatorship of Egypt. And as far as I can tell, many of the ideological conflicts in our day are very different. What is desired is not freedom from the entire system. Freedom from the entire system, I think, uh, would reflect something along the lines of what Jesus was getting at with his, his notion of the kingdom of God. Um, rather, what ideologues want is the freedom in a way, to take what is rightfully theirs, at least as they perceive it, and then, of course, the freedom to keep conflicts in place. I mention this because I think that sometimes people might appropriate the Exodus story for purposes that have nothing to do with the actual story of Exodus. Um, So it's possible to take this as a political statement about, like, let's say, the proletariat establishing a dictatorship of the proletariat in, in place of the, say, hypothetical dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So um, this is actually more like the proletariat seeing that there is an unjust system and moving away from it, moving into some different order of being, moving into the desert to discover the law, say. Um, And that's probably a good place to stop, (laughs) even if it's maybe a bit of an abrupt place to stop. I hope that that is um, decent enough thought for you. Before I I finish off completely, I want to just give you a a rough sketch of an idea that I've I've had for some podcasts when I'm done with this Exodus series. I want to return to the Enneagram, but I've actually had a few epiphanies, more than a few, really astonishing epiphanies around how the Enneagram and mimetic theory intersect. Um, the, The combination of of the Enneagram thinking with thinking around mimetic theory is quite amazing. And I'm going to be presenting that. I think that it's it's sort of revelatory. Um, well, it has been for me, and, and I'm kind of keen to, to share some of those revelations with you in the hope that they will be of benefit to you. Um, and I do, in fact, hope that 
this has been of benefit to you, at least in, in, in the sense that it's presented some interesting thoughts for you to contemplate. Thanks very much for listening in, everyone. I, I really appreciate you listening in, and I hope that you are looking after yourselves, that you are being excessively kind to yourselves. Cheers.